Cinema Journal presents Acamedia, a podcast that still exists. Yeah, we're still here. We're still here. I'm Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. And sorry for that long dry spell there, but the uh, the end of the semester just kind of walloped killer. us. All of us, Bill, Michael, all of us, um, probably Todd too. We didn't even talk to Todd. He, in fact, had to send us an email saying, yeah. hey guys, are you have a podcast Is anybody out there? <laughs> yeah. So we're back in business though. We've got loads of content. In fact, now we've got like a bunch of stuff coming up this summer. We've already we got- a very full summer queued up. Yeah. And some travels. Michael and I are going to be at Consoling Passions in Dublin next month, so uh, we'll try to record some fun stuff there, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. But first of all, we've got our usual Cinema Journal Presents segment, plus an extra special segment we'll set up in just a second. Um, for the Cinema Journal Presents segment, we're doing something a little bit different. It's not going to be an interview with an author of an article. It's an interview with the author of a video essay about an article. This whole thing is becoming really, really meta. <laughs> it really is. It's Inception style at this yeah. point. Yeah. The, the I've got a top in my hands. So I'm going to keep <laughs> myself oriented. Right. We'll, ha we'll have to listen for the top if it's spinning or still. So the, the deal is, I believe this was Will Brooker's idea, that he asked the editors of In Transition, the videographic essay forum, to commission video essay uh, creators to respond to articles in Cinema Journal and make video essay responses to those. And so this is with Cinema Journal issue 54.3. So the first one we're going to play for you in this episode is an interview with Austin Fisher, who is a senior lecturer in film and television studies. And he made a video essay in response to an article by Michelle Cho in the current issue of Cinema Journal. I really love this project and I, I want to talk to you more about it, but I think we should probably listen to it first. Let's jump right in. Michelle Cho's Cinema Journal article examines the operation of genre translation in transnational cinemas through an analysis of Kim Ji-won's 2008 film The Good, The Bad, The Weird, which triangulates the genre conventions of Hollywood spaghetti and Manchurian westerns. And in the essay, she argues that Kim uses the literal and depthless rendering of genre tropes to create a work whose fidelity to its generic predecessors ultimately dismantles their conventional ideologies. In response to that article, Austin Fisher created a video essay entitled Spaghetti's in Translation, which splices together reaction shots in standoffs from four films, Sukiyaki, Western Django, directed by Mike Takashi, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and For a Few Dollars More, directed by Sergio Leone, and The Good, The Bad, The Weird by Kim. This gave uh, Fisher then a relatively simple Kuleshov effect, and across three chapters, he invites, quote, the viewer to chart a spatial and cultural relationship between the films by the association of sequential clips. Thank you for joining Ecomedia again, Austin. Thanks for asking me on for the, uh, the podcast again. Sure, yeah, we're excited to talk to you about your video essay. So you were commissioned to create a video essay to respond to a cinema journal essay. And I'm wondering, were there any uh, particular instructions from the In Transition crew about what you could do, or are there any parameters you yourself usually set before setting out to work on a video essay? Well, I was I was given free reign to respond, really, as I wanted. So um, I was kind of offered the choice of kind of making a textual or voiceover form of video essay or a more kind of poetic or rhythmic mode. Really, I was just asked to read the article that was sent to me, the Michel Cho article, and then to respond using sound and image. So it was kind of, it was dauntingly open in a way, the brief. <laughs> I could do what I wanted. Um, uh, in terms of the parameters I set myself, I've only actually made one video essay before, and that was using a voiceover uh, with freeze frames on one clip from the searchers. So that was more like writing a conference paper, really, kind of speaking over a series of images as, as aids to my written argument. Um, so this time I decided to do something quite new for me. So I found myself with no experience to draw on. I had to kind of make it up as I went along. So there weren't really any parameters, no. So what was your process? And especially as you were relatively new to this, how did you come to your idea? And then what was your process for creating the, the finished version? Right, yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd had a a vague idea a while ago of playing around with editing in Sergio Leone films. And I've always been really interested by that 
there's a scene near the beginning of For a Few Dollars More when Mortimer and Monko, uh, Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood, um, are looking at the, the wanted poster of Indio, the villain. And then there's this really rapid sequence of editing that cuts between their eyes and the poster um, and becomes quite bewildering to the viewer and it's always interested me. And it always reminds me of the scene in Breathless when Jean-Paul Belmondo is looking at the Humphrey Bogart poster, this kind of dialogue being set up with a symbol of American culture in, in post-war Europe. So every time I see that scene in the Leone film, um, I've been thinking how it might be interesting to play around with the relationships, the spatial relationships, the cultural relationships that maybe could be symbolised in that scene. But I never really got around to trying that out. I never really had time um, until I read the, the Michelle Cho article because she addresses this issue of the spaghetti western being in a cultural dialogue but also a stylistic dialogue with, with other national cinemas. So that's the scene from For a Few Dollars More that I started out with. I just started playing around with it, cutting it up in iMovie, thinking about what I could maybe replace the shots of the poster of Indio with to think about the relationships, the cultural relationships that Cho was looking at in her article. Um, and I ended up cutting it together with Sukiyaki Western Django at the start of this video essay. So the challenge, I suppose, that this task gave me pushed me to explore this really kind of small area of curiosity that I'd had for a while but hadn't ever really had time to do and never got round to before. So it's quite interesting in that way. And your description also indicates how vital the video essay form can be for exploring these ideas, because as you're saying right from the start, your idea is you know, almost purely visual. And I wanted to pick up on that idea in regard to the sidebar essay you wrote that goes with the, the video essay, where you talk about how you were inspired by Eric Faden's 2008 Mediascape essay, A Manifesto for Critical Literacy, um, in which he argues the moving image is evolving forward, while essentially the media studies discipline, because it primarily operates around the written word for scholarship, is kind of thereby going backwards. So in that regard, how did this video essay, do you think, unlock for you ideas that might not have come from a print response? And in that regard, what broader potential do you see in the videographic essay format to open up media studies scholarship? And I'm especially intrigued here because, again, you've only done a few of these. I'm intrigued. Is this something then that's opened up that you do want to do more of this kind of scholarship? Yeah, well, so to, to answer your first question first, I've, I've spent um, quite a few years analyzing Spaghetti Western's in written traditional scholarship form, looking at their kind of their cultural, political significance, their historical significance, placing them in contexts of nas national contexts, transnational contexts, asking what they can tell us about time and place. Um, and that all kind of, I found, tends to invite written scholarship. That's where I've always felt comfortable. That I still do feel much more comfortable doing that. Um, so I've only really previously analysed the style of these films as um, a kind of means to that end, to, to gather evidence, to support an argument about cultural context. So I think I thought that if I was going to leave my comfort zone and investigate stylistic cinematic issues, then I might as well do it completely and try to use the audiovisual grammar that the filmmakers use, um, which is kind of exactly the argument Eric Faden is putting forward in that essay, that, that we have to try and understand the challenges that were posed to the filmmaker in the process of, of analysis. And I think that's something that the video essay is really good at, and I think that's why Faden's essay is so kind of inspiring to me, because it, it can complement written analysis of history and culture, because it helps you to kind of immerse yourself in the film's text and think through the challenges that face the filmmakers. So I've written about editing in films loads of times in the past, but doing this, this video essay has kind of made me think about how difficult editing is and how it can create meanings that might be inadvertent, really fluid meanings, and also meanings that are very dependent on really tiny details, like split-second timings can really change how um, a particular cut could be interpreted. And so that really revealed that to me in a way that I think my written work's never done before. So I might approach questions of style in a different way in the future. Um, to answer your final question, yes, I think this is the sort of thing I'd really like to do more of now because precisely for that reason, I think it actually, hopefully, it will enrich my written analysis. It will help me to think about how I use film style and how I write about it. That's essentially part of what you're doing in that sidebar essay, which uh, all of the video essays on In Transition do have a little sidebar from the creators mm -hmm. explaining a little bit of the background of their work. And so I'm very intrigued by that, having the textual component added to the video essay. So was that something you also found interesting to reflect on of how to describe in written words what you had created in video form? 
I found that really hard to write, actually. Um, <laughs> having just said that, I'm much more comfortable writing um, because it, it gave me, like, it was good because it gave me the opportunity to kind of say what my intention was, which was quite useful because I'd opted to not go for spoken voiceover or text in the video. So it was good for that in that sense. But it was actually asking me to put thoughts into words that I tried really hard to divorce from my normal language of analysis. And that was really hmm. quite weird, having to then analyse that in words. And I think that's revealed something to me as well about the different modes of analysis, that they can, that they can accompany each other. They reveal different elements of a text, different elements of its history, and, in, and they do it in different ways. And so having them side by side, I think, helps me think through the meanings of these scenes and the meanings of these the editing decisions. And we tend to think kind of inherent in the term video essay, videographic form, we think very much of the visuals, but you have some really interesting audio things going on in there as well. There's no, as you say, there's no voiceover, but um, you do utilize music and sound effects from the original film. So what effects were you striving for there with your sound editing choices? Well, I, I think at first I was trying to kind of think about rhythmic relationships between sound and image, because one thing that occurred to me as I was making it was that it's it's such a cliche that spaghetti westerns are operatic. It's always said um, in critical analysis. And I found it quite interesting thinking through why that cliche is used so often. Um, and it kind of revealed certain things to me as I was trying to marry the sound and the image together. Because I'm, I'm not an expert in editing anything, and I'm definitely not an expert in music or sound design. But I think there's something quite peculiar about how spaghetti westerns use sound and image and when the images are introduced into new contexts of sound new aural contexts the i think the experiment's quite interesting it was um i was surprised how easy it was actually to drop shots from uh, the good the bad the weird into the good the bad and the ugly for example and i i expected it to be much harder to do the fact that i could do it so easily actually brought michelle cho's argument home to me because she was arguing precisely that Kim Ji Woon's being stylistically was we had stylistic fidelity to Leone and so that kind of illustrated that quite graphically to me I suppose in a way that had I just sat down and watched the two films that wouldn't have been so apparent so it was kind of a revealing process for me yeah, and certainly as a viewer of that, I thought that really came across strongly in the essay and the tie to Cho's article about what you can gain from that kind of basically intertextual editing and, and how that opens up new ways of seeing those original images. I found that really compelling. Well, th uh, thank you very much. <laughs> certainly my intention, yeah. Um, has Michelle Cho seen it? What would you hope she has or that readers of the essay might, uh, who would then watch your piece might have? Um, I've, I've been told she has has seen it and that she approves of it. I certainly I hope so. I hope she's not just being polite. But um, <laughs> I was quite worried at first that I, um, I couldn't do justice to her arguments, which are really complex. It's a cinema journal article. It's thousands of words long. It's, it goes through all sorts of nuances and complexities. And I thought that doing a short video really couldn't do justice to what she was writing. Um so I then just decided to focus on one very small strand of what she was saying and not try to present this kind of developed argument in such a way as just to think about and interrogate one thing she said, which was about, as I said, the, the stylistic fidelity to Leone in contrast to the kind of the mashup approach of Sukiyaki Western Django. And so that I hope that that's adequately illustrated or helped us to think through that just that strand of her argument. That's one thing I, f I find really fascinating about this whole in-transition issue in this experiment, because video essays themselves, of course, are an innovative form of scholarship. But the idea of responding to an article where it's not just a traditional book review or something like that, that the coming together of that, the kind of uniqueness of the video essay format, plus this idea of, you know, let's pull out one thread or let's highlight something that this article makes me think out of that in itself to me is also really exciting and innovative and gives us kind of new ways to think through what we can create from scholarship. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's, it's, it's becoming a bit of a, a cliche that this kind of theory practice divide is breaking down, but I think that's really where, where that is happening is that the creativity of analysis is really apparent through this process because you're beginning to think about how you can express analytical insights in a certain way that doesn't rely on traditional modes of scholarship. So that's certainly what's it's helped me think about that process in much more depth than I've had done before. And especially choosing not to have a voiceover, because my initial response was just to read into a microphone, uh, respond to Michelle Cho's article, say what I thought about it, almost as you say, do a review of it, and then illustrate it with slides and images. And, and then I just thought that maybe I might as well just write that. 
um, if I was going to do that. And so I just decided to do something slightly different. Uh, I, d- I have no idea if it worked or not, but I leave that to others <laughs> to, to judge. But um, the, the process of doing it was really interesting. Right. And we will have a link to your video essay on the Acomedia website so people can head there if you haven't watched it already to check it out and see what you think. So thanks so much for giving us some insight into the work. Thank you very much as well for inviting me back onto the podcast. All right. Thanks a lot, Austin. Thank you. Okay, that was great. I love this. I love the idea. I love the um, the way that it came together. Um, and by the way, congratulations to you uh, for being part of the team that created this In Transition project. Yeah, I'm really happy. And for being recognized by SCMS for that. Yeah, we won a Cinema Journal, excuse me, we won an SCMS award, which is very exciting. Yeah. And of course, full credit goes to the three editors, Catherine Grant, Christian Keithley, and Drew Morton. They got this up and running and at basically top-notch journal level right out of the gate and really exciting work they're doing there. Yeah, it's really, it's really great. One of the things I really love about about these projects is that they literalize the way in which you kind of almost cognitively engage with a critical argument because it's you know you get to you get to essentially watch someone thinking through the the conceptual material in the piece, mm-hmm. um, and they, they do this really remarkably well. I love this Fisher piece; it's really great stuff. Yeah, and so we encourage you to go to our website, aca-media.org, if you haven't already, and watch the uh, piece from Austin Fisher. And then, while you're there, you might as well check out, of course, all of them, but in particular one from Jen Proctor, because in our next episode, I have a great interview with Jen Proctor, and hers is very different. It's an experimental film, essentially, and I love that idea, putting together you know, the experimental film format with scholarship. And I had a great conversation with her about that. So check that one out. It's a little long, it's 28 minutes, but I guarantee you it's, it's a, a worthy experience. Yeah, it's worth, it's worth the time. And those of you who are looking ahead to teaching in the fall, I'm already thinking about ways in which I can incorporate some of these things because it's, I think as a teaching tool, you can assign the original article and then you can assign this video essay that responds to it and engages with it. And it just animates the entire conversation. I think it's. I'm. I'm looking forward to experimenting with that. That might even be something to think about bringing into the the classroom as an assignment as well. Yeah. Do readings have students provide some form of video essay response to them? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, good stuff. We're going to move on to our next segment now. We've got a really special presentation for you here. This was not produced by us. In fact, it was the labor of a good number of people at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it is in tribute to Michelle Helms, a professor who both Michael and I have had and Bill Kirkpatrick has had. Um, And so Andrew Bottomley, Jeremy Morris, Christopher Swinar, and others put together a tribute. And because Michelle's work is in sound, in in radio, they wanted to essentially provide a tribute in the, the... you know, form the medium which she has so thoroughly investigated across her career. And they have a full version that they posted to the Antenna blog. We're going to offer a, a somewhat shortened version. It's about a half hour long um, just to sort of get to the, to the heart of it. And that might sound a little bit long, that it's a half hour long, but I can guarantee you, even this, if this is the very first moment you even heard the name Michelle Helms, which I, I find unlikely, but it's possible, um, there's still great stuff in here. There's great stories. There's great suggestions for how to be a good scholar, how to be a good mentor. So I think every minute of this is, is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's give it a listen. <laughs> Michelle is somebody who's... Michelle is one of those. Michelle Helms. She stopped and saw Michelle Helms name tag and goes, oh my God, you're Michelle Helms. Honestly, Michelle is one of the most generous, smart, friendly people I've worked with in my 20 years of academia. Michelle Helms has made an indelible impact on the field of media studies. I count myself lucky to produce work that is half as insightful, accessible, and adaptable as hers. Michelle was like the sleeper hit of my grad experience. Michelle's not our mom. She's a transmitter. Uh, We're all historians, whether we consciously acknowledge it or not. And I'm proud to be a Helmsian cultural historian 
While her publications and research are well known, she has also been a generous and willing mentor. Three things I know about Michelle are this. She is a remarkable scholar, she is a remarkable person, and she makes a remarkable cocktail. Her legacy is extraordinary. Michelle has changed my life. One feels when one's next to uh, Michelle that the entire world is uh, interesting. How would I describe Michelle Helms? Well, Michelle did radio when radio wasn't cool. Michelle Helms, original gangster sound studies. Michelle Helms brought cultural theory to broadcasting history. Michelle Helms made room for a generation of radio scholars and broadcast historians. One of the things that's amazing about the media and cultural studies area is how many incredible scholars it's produced over and over and over across the years. And when you have a program that's that good, you have to ask, you know, where it comes from. And when there's one person who's been there the whole time, you know where the answer starts. And that really is Michelle. Michelle deserves incredible commendation, thanks for really keeping the program alive and alive at the pinnacle of the field, uh, producing so many great scholars whose work is so clearly beholden to hers, who have learned from her, learned method, uh, learned approaches, learned ways of being as a scholar. It's, it's really inspiring. One thing that I appreciate about Michelle is how even as her graduate students leave and move on to other things, she really values the community that has emerged out of Wisconsin and uh, has done a lot to make sure that all of us feel like we are part of a tradition and we are not on our own. Even though she's no longer my professor and she's no longer on my committee, I do feel like she's still an advisor and she's still someone who I can go to as a mentor. And even as I have aged faster than she has, I still feel like, you know, she's someone who I can go to that I can trust, but also who treats me as a peer and with respect. Jonathan Stern, Jonathan Gray and Jason Mattel are all talking about one person, Michelle Helms the leading cultural historian of American broadcasting. Michelle is a preeminent scholar of radio and sound studies and one of our most important scholars of media, culture, and communication more generally. Through her canonical and path-breaking books, Hollywood and Broadcasting, Radio Voices, Network Nations, and Only Connect, plus a handful of edited volumes and some four dozen journal articles and book chapters, Michelle has helped bring into being the cultural study of broadcasting as a discipline while inspiring generations of young scholars to follow her lead. This is to say nothing of her incredible track record of service and leadership, both to the media studies field at large and to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in particular. And it is that last point that has brought us here today, because after 28 years as a professor, 22 of those years spent in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Michelle's retiring. While this certainly isn't the end of her career, she has plenty of years of research, writing, and guidance left ahead of her. It is the end of one distinct phase of it. Indeed, one of Michelle's greatest impacts on media studies has been as a teacher and mentor at UW-Madison. And so, what better way to celebrate the end of this important stage in Michelle's career than with the very medium she has spent so much of her career investigating and championing. So, Michelle Helms. Life. Sorry, I couldn't resist doing that. Uh, by the way, I'm Andrew Bottomley, a proud Michelle Helms advisee at UW-Madison. And while I'm no Ralph Edwards, I will be your host for this program. Although, really, for the most part, I'm just going to let Michelle's friends, students, and colleagues speak on their own, because they have no shortage of things to say about this wonderful woman. So, let's begin, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. Look, it's his arm. It is rising, his arm's rising. They're watching his arm as it rises. They stir, they cry, they cry out, they are shouting. They're shouting with happiness. Listen! Oh, I can hear him. He's coming near Oh, I know it. Hurry! Hurry! Hurry, please! Ah! 
How has Michelle influenced me? Uh... My name is Tona Hangen. So Michelle set me on a path where I've happily messed in the margins of her field for my entire career. Well, I don't think I've ever published anything that doesn't cite one of Michelle's essays or books. My name is Elena Levine. Michelle is the one who truly taught me to think historiographically. She's the one who taught me to understand culture as emerging within and contributing to historically specific contexts. And now I really, I can't think about any aspect of media or culture, past or present, outside of that framework. Um, Michelle taught me everything, that everything can, can and should be historicized, that you always want to think about um, the historical forces that shape and are shaped by whatever your object of study may be. She's really taught me that all history is a product of the present, of the context within which it's written and shared, and that also shapes everything I do. This is Bill Kirkpatrick. I had gone to Wisconsin to work with John Fisk. I had gone there to work with David Bordwell. And here's this other person who I didn't know who she was. She studied radio, whatever, until one day she took us over to the archives at the State Historical Society. And I thought this was going to be the most boring day of my life. She's making us go over and meet and we're going to meet for class at the archives and out comes this archivist who's probably boring and this whole thing is boring and I'm bored and this isn't what I came to grad school for. And within a couple of hours, within a couple of hours, she had completely turned around my scholarly trajectory. She completely turned me on to archival research. She changed who I was as a scholar. This is Christine Becker. found Michelle Holmes' work on Hollywood stardom and radio broadcasting, and it was a revelation, not simply for the facts it offered, but even more so for the rich combination of approaches it represented. Contained within it was industry history as well as formal analysis, but also rich cultural analysis of broadcasting's discourse and impact. I quickly realized that not only was there more out there to study, there were more ways out there to study it. And I started to see my project not as a film studies dissertation that happened to cover TV, but as an interdisciplinary media studies exploration of relationships among entertainment industry forces, aesthetic texts, and cultural discourses. So this is the most valuable gift that Michelle Helms gave me inspirational work that showed there aren't strict boundaries between media, between critical approaches, between cultural categories. I'm Kit Hughes. As someone who researches non-commercial media, I value working with Michelle given her appreciation for media forms that the Academy often overlooks, but have been central to people's actual lived experiences. This is Josh Shepard, proud advisee of Michelle Helms. Over the course of two meetings in 2010 that I remember very vividly, she reorganized my trajectory as a thinker. In the first meeting, she said to me, Josh, you see the forest and I see the trees, and I'm going to train you to see the trees. In the second meeting, after arguing about the contours of the public sphere in Habermas for 40 minutes, she said to me, Josh, if you want to be a responsible researcher of primary sources, you need to extrapolate from datum and build your arguments from evidence. The projection of a theory upon history is simply unable to account for why decisions have been made. And here, I saw the limitations in my thinking. This is Derek Johnson. I believe I can claim the exclusive honor of having been both Michelle's advisee and her colleague as faculty at UW. And in both of those capacities, I feel her example has given me a lot to live up to. My name is Kyle Conway. I think that the biggest impact, the biggest, the most important thing she taught me was what it means to be a good colleague. And this is something that I didn't realize until I started my own career as a professor. And I thought back to the way that Michelle treated grad students as equals and uh, potential future colleagues. The many parties that she hosted at her house, the way that she treated us in class, the way she took our work very seriously. I hope that in my career I can emulate her approach and I can be generous with uh, grad students and with other colleagues in the same way. This is Norma Coates. Personally, she was an inspiration. Uh, Michelle was raising a child. Amanda was a teenager at the time. I was an older student and decided to start a family right as I was starting my dissertation. Michelle did not tell me not to, did not tell me I was crazy, instead was very, very supportive. 
and uh, was one of the first visitors to the hospital with my child and you know has always had a special place in her heart for my child and vice versa so she was a very big inspiration as a, as a mother as well gangbusters Jonathan Stern. If I had to pick one single quality of Michelle, I'd say uh, that she's a true believer. Her historiography is vigorous. I always prefer that term to rigorous because rigor, rigor mortis sounds kind of inflexible. And in fact, she's a very flexible researcher. Uh, She doesn't take historical categories as givens, though, which is the sort of contribution of uh, cultural theory, American studies, cultural studies that you see in her work. Um, But she never takes the easy easy road. Um, The work is meticulously researched, carefully uh, thought over and worked over and written and rewritten, uh, and she never rests on her laurels. This is Professor Jason Jacobs. Michelle's strength as a scholar is her endless curiosity. Um, so her strength as a scholar, I think, is just the speed at which she's able to synthesize quite a range, a diverse range of historical material. She's not beholden to you know, sort of intellectual fads, trends and fashions. She really is guided, I think, strongly by the historical materials that she discovers. But of course, part of her distinction and skill is is her ability to look for it and again to ask ask the right questions. And and that's an enormous strength. And and I learned a lot from reading her work, of course, but also just talking to her about her work as well. My name is Jonathan Bignall. Michelle can connect the particular with the wider context and she can look at things in comparison to each other so for example she often bases her work on archival documentation very precise forensic detail but she can then link what she finds out to broader forces like the ways that technologies change over time the way that particular individuals work within an industry context how governments Uh, feed into the ways in which media develop and how genres or types of program rise and fall and change over time. So all of these interacting factors taken together make media history rich, informative and exciting. And Michel is especially brilliant at doing that kind of work. I'm Tim Wall. Michel's greatest strength is her ability to get us to re-examine our assumptions particularly those around radio history, and to challenge us in a manner that's never threatening or excluding. Her work on the interchange between US radio and radio institutions in the early days both rewrites that story in important ways and I think provides us with new ways to think about how we should actually deal with those surviving primary texts of radio's past. This is Danny Kimball. I I remember being a young grad student coming in just about a year out of undergrad and really having no idea what I was doing and knowing that uh, a lot of what I was interested in was everything new, uh, new media, new technologies, just new, new, new everything. And one of the first things that I quickly learned after uh, working immediately with Michelle is that everything that I was so interested in that was so new, of course, is not really new at all. And and this is something that I think has been so helpful about a lot of her historical work is showing how all of the same issues that uh, we're focused on today, you know, these are the same things that have been fought over again and again throughout history. Amanda Lotz. Michelle has embodied what it means to be a feminist media scholar in both her scholarship and actions, and has been an incredible role model, not only as a first-rate scholar, but as a beacon of integrity and generosity in the field. I'm Megan Sapner-Ankerson, and so many of the questions and concerns that guide that work are influenced by the types of questions that Michelle asks about radio and sound work. So when a new medium comes on the scene, How does it come to take the form that it does? How do institutional structures 
national cultures or commercial pressures, et cetera, shape programming practices uh, or aesthetic decisions or definitions of quality? Or how do cultural hierarchies related to gender, race, or class influence the ways that stories are told or how media is organized and arranged? For example, like, you know, scheduling practices, the division of the broadcast schedule into daytime, you know, women's programming, and primetime, pr- prestigious um, programming for the public. So all of those uh, questions had a huge influence on the things that I'm thinking about. This is Michael Kackman. Thinking about Michelle as a scholar and as a an intellectual mentor, one of the things that really stands out to me is her really kind of supple way of thinking across different kinds of media forms from her earliest work on the relationship of film to the broadcasting industries to her move into radio and more recently her her work on various national and international media contexts. She really helped cultivate a kind of sensibility of curiosity about the object. So like, okay, here's a film. What are, what are its textual forms? What are its industrial conditions of emergence? How might it be interacting with different kinds of, of other forms and other industries? How might it be interacting with different kinds of reception cultures? And in a sense, it didn't really matter whether the object at hand was a Hollywood film, a radio drama, a television show. And of course, these things all blur, right? You know, so so if you're listening to an episode of the Lux Radio Theater and it's their staging of The Thin Man, you know, what what is the object? You have to think about, okay, what are, what are the textual features that are important here? How are they interacting with other kinds of forms and that kind of thing? And especially as our field has has really embraced and taken seriously questions of transmediation, I think Michelle has had uh, an enormous influence on cultivating a kind of critical sensibility that allows us to 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 deal with those with those kinds of questions in a in a graceful and thoughtful and engaging way. Hearing before a distinguished Hollywood audience, Mr. Powell, Miss Loy, and a cast of eighteen great players present the play that has broken box office records from coast to coast: The Thin Man. The important thing is the rhythm. Always have rhythm in your shaking. On Manhattan, you shake to foxtrot. A Bronx, to uh, two-step time. A dry martini, you always shake to waltz time. Hollywood Hotel presents one full hour of entertainment direct from the 20th Century Fox Studios in Hollywood, California, with Dick Powell as your master of ceremonies. The movie parade. Here we are, your favorite of the cinema screen. My name is Janet McCabe. Michelle has been a trailblazer in so many ways throughout her career, breaking new research ground and helping us see old media differently and in new, often unanticipated ways. She is intrepid in defining and shaping new areas of study and her research into radio and television, mediums which have for far too long suffered from neglect, will define how we understand them for years to come. This is Lynn Spiegel. Over the last 30 years, Michelle has helped to organize and energize the field of media history. Michelle shows how central broadcasting is to the development of the nation, to national and transnational identities, and to issues of gender, class, regionality, and ethnicity. Her work makes radio voices visible again for the TV and digital generations. And Michelle always demonstrates the benefits of archival research, the joyful surprises and deep insights that come from it. This is Aniko Badrakozi. Michelle, of course, is one of the major figures in the development of history and historiography around U.S. radio broadcasting. My name is Jennifer Highland Wong. I think Michelle's biggest contribution is that she has made radio a subject that academics can care about that they can work in and that they can get published in. And I think that when she argues in Radio Voices that you can't fully understand TV without understanding radio, she's really legitimized the place of radio in media studies. She was always completely clear that despite what seemed in the early 2000s, the increasing number of smart people who were moving into uh, different forms of revisionist radio history, that there was room for all. And that there was room for people from far away as well as, well as people from within the U.S., and that there was still a, a, a lot of interesting and important work to be done. This is Bill Kirkpatrick. Michelle's legacy will be found in her 
books and essays that will continue to be read. But I think I won't be the only one to say this. It will be found in the extraordinary field building that Michelle has accomplished. Obviously, the generations of grad students that she has mentored and supported, not just her own at Wisconsin, but also in the conference building, in the supporting the journal, Radio Journal, and getting that off the ground and now coming back in to edit it. The discussion lists and the listservs and bringing bringing communities of radio scholars together, helping radio studies find respect and a place within the larger frame of media studies, getting so many young scholars excited about radio. Uh, her legacy is extraordinary. So we think of her as a radio scholar, but of course, she has made great contributions to the study of film, to the study of television, to sound studies, to feminist studies, to historiography. She is a a rare scholar whose work truly transcends all these various disciplines that we call media studies. This is Lisa Parks. Honestly, Michelle is one of the most generous, smart, friendly people I've worked with in my 20 years of academia. I feel so fortunate that I had the chance to learn from her, and I think of her as a pioneer in radio studies and media studies more generally. Um, She's someone who's just extended the boundaries of our field in so many vital directions, and I especially especially appreciate her commitment to integrating gender and race and ethnicity and class into the history of broadcasting, which is something that really hadn't been done rigorously until Michelle came along and started doing it. So we really have her to thank for that. I'm Jonathan Stern. At a grander intellectual level, I'd say uh, Michelle has probably defined some many of the parameters of radio and broadcasting history and historiography for a generation. And she'll leave behind a uh, cadre of students uh, and former students and colleagues who will take the work in a thousand different directions. Um, so I, I feel like this is a classic case of like the field of uh, broadcasting history, of radio history, uh, sound studies. They're all in better condition now than when she arrived on the scene. And that's a lot due to her. This is Ron Becker. Michelle's legacy, I think, is that she trained several generations of media scholars who understand the value of history. Media and cultural studies at Wisconsin is often associated with the work of John Fisk. And that's always bugged me, not because uh, John's work doesn't deserve to be up there, but because it seems so clear to me when I read the work of the people who have come through this department that one of the things that almost all of them share in common is a real commitment to historically sound, uh, involved, contextualized work. And to me, while there are others who deserve credit for that, no one deserves more credit than Michelle Helms. When I was working on television studies with Amanda Lotz, Amanda wanted to coin a term of the Madison School Um, And we couldn't do it because it would sound like it was me coming up with it and it would sound self-aggrandizing. But the point is, is that the Madison School is what Michelle has produced. Scholars who think about history, whose work may not be about a moment in past time, but who realize that they need to situate the present moment uh, within an awareness of how we got here and who sometimes are therefore historians of the present as much as they are historians of the past. Michelle and her instruction and her scholarship really ties together so much of the work that's come out of media and cultural studies across the last two decades. This is Jarek Valiant. The Helms School, if you will, at the University of Wisconsin has representatives throughout the United States and indeed the world at large. And Michelle Helms has taught us all how we can work together with a cooperative community spirit, uh, showing goodwill and collegiality, as well as pursuing the standards of excellence and commitment that she has so wonderfully modeled 
throughout her distinguished career. My name is Matt Sinkowitz. Probably most importantly is the influence that she's had on, on I mean, you could count them, I suppose, but I'll say countless graduate students, so a real lot of people who are in uh, faculty positions across the country, across the world, uh, who are teaching history, uh, history of broadcasting, through the lens that Michelle Helms uh, helped them create. And so uh, I think that we will be seeing the influences of Michelle's work uh, for uh, as long as as long as the field will be around, I think that she's made a, uh, a contribution that will have an impact uh, in a truly lasting sense. This is Christine Becker. It also occurs to me that my career has kind of eerily paralleled Michelle's. I got a PhD in film studies, ended up teaching in a TV department, wrote a book on the relationship between Hollywood and broadcasting, and next turned to studying the relationship between British and American TV. I'm still one or two or maybe 50 publications behind her, um, but someday I might achieve my dream of living up to Michelle Helms' legacy. Or maybe I'll just jump to the retirement part first. We'll see. This is Norma Coates. You know, she has left us a great body of work, which I don't think is going to end. I, I don't think it's going to be possible for Michelle to not continue to research, especially now that she's going to be near New York City, except she might be a little busy with her grandchild a lot of the time. But, you know, she has uh, left this legacy of writing as well as a legacy of students, both her own and those that she has taken under her wing from other universities who are going out and uh, continuing to produce great work. And all of a sudden, radio is hot again. Go figure. Hello, Michelle. This is Henry Jenkins. The field has grown up so much, and a lot of that has had to do with your scholarship, your editorial and curatorial work, your work uh, mentoring graduate students has all helped to pave the way for much more robust radio studies today than we would have ever imagined a decade or two back. And it's just in time. I'm just back home from Athens, Georgia, where I was working with Jonathan Gray and Jeffrey Jones on helping to pick this year's Peabody Award winners. And we saw a record number of outstanding pieces of radio work. But you've also, I think, taught us to think differently and be ready for the explosion of new work on radio and podcasts that are changing the way young people think about that medium. Good stuff. That's a really, I think, a really incredible piece of work. And we just want to give credit to those who made it. So it was written, produced, and directed by Andrew Bottomley. The co-producers were Jeremy Morris and Christopher Swinar. The editors were Jeremy Morris and Andrew Bottomley. And then Jeremy Morris did the sound mix. And there's additional special thanks to Jonathan Gray and Derek Johnson, as well as all the participants uh, who recorded themselves, including Michael and I and your Bill in there as mm -hmm. well. Um, that was, I was really proud to, to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a longer version, which which is on the Antenna blog, uh, and we will also link to that on our website. Mm -hmm. The other thing that unfortunately came to mind when I at the end of listening to that was because Michelle is retiring from University of Wisconsin Madison. This feels like a, you know, at the end of an era, but tying that to larger events going on in higher education, especially at state universities, it's it makes me fear for the future. And I'm, I'm speaking here of substantial cuts at mm -hmm. state universities, attacks on liberal arts and humanities majors and institutes. Um, Wisconsin is one of the uh, flashpoints, North Carolina being another, Louisiana and Illinois as well. And I just, I couldn't help but reflect when I was listening to that piece about how much Michelle inspired about these topics, even Bill's story about, oh, archives are going to be boring. And then a teacher shows yeah. you this and you're like, oh my God, this is incredible. And so many of these cuts are being driven by this just austere mentality of, of demand and, and, you know, university as capitalism and, and students as consumers. And it's just... That will ruin education. I mean, everything you just heard about what Michelle Helms brought to higher education, those are exactly the things we could lose with these um, cuts that are coming forth. Yeah. You know, Michelle, I think, was a really terrific example of a senior scholar at her best. Um, you know, as somebody who provided a sense of direction and community and continuity. And if you look across at the best programs in our field... Most of them have, maybe it's one, maybe it's a handful, maybe it's, it's never a lot of senior scholars who have really helped to create a kind of uh, intellectual community. And that's, it's hard to create and it's hard to sustain. 
And it's got to be incredibly difficult to have someone of that caliber leave. And then who knows when they're even going to be able to hire again because of these kinds of cuts, these budget pressures. And it's not to say that the people who are still there aren't terrific because they're wonderful people there and they're going to be fine. But, but that kind of deep, long investment in a field is what's created the top graduate programs in our field. Right. And you know, even the adjunct movement, uh, you know, it's obviously being an adjunct is is problematic for the person who's stuck with this low paid job. But it also then is problematic for the university that isn't going to get, as you say, that kind of long term, um, you know, development that you can get from a long tenured scholar. And especially when you have and, and trust me, many people in media studies who are tenured are as committed as Michelle and, mm-hmm. and even it's not as if when they get tenure they stop doing work and to have that kind of long-term continuity is again something that's tragically doesn't seem to matter as much to, to the people pulling the, the strings in, yeah. in state governments. Yeah, it's frustrating. All right. Well, on that yeah. depressing note, <laughs> but we'll we'll be back. We'll give you the long-term continuity of the Acamedia um, podcast, which is now back on track. That's it. Yep. So we'll uh, we've got coming up, as I said earlier, we'll have an interview with Jen Proctor about her video essay. We have on the horizon as well an interview with Jill Simpson, the new director of SCMS. Right. So we hope to have that for our next episode. So lots of good stuff to and look forward to. And some other new features, some things we're uh, experimenting with. We're going to have some good stuff coming up over the next few months. Yep. So should be a fun summer. Acamedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as by the Durf Fund at Denison University. And we thank Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University for his producing help, and also Todd Thompson at University of Texas, Austin. Our work would be impossible without them. And thanks also to Jordan Wilson, our intern. Uh, We also would like to thank our episode participants, so Austin Fisher, and thank you so much to Andrew Bottomley and everyone at UW-Madison for providing us with the Michelle Helms tribute. Check out more of it online at www.acca-media.org. And you can also check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at ACA underscore media. All right. Have a great summer. Bye.